Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we consider God's word together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And with your disciple, with the Apostle Peter, we declare this morning that we have nowhere else to go. For you have the words of eternal life. 
And so we ask now, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as we return to the Gospel of John this morning, we're returning to John 7. And you'll remember that where we left off last week was Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the midst of the feast, he's teaching. And in the midst of the feast, he's engaging various people from the crowds. And the Feast of Tabernacles itself was a feast that commemorated Israel's wandering in the wilderness and God's presence with his people when they were in the wilderness. And when the people were living in tents and moving from place to place, so God himself lived in a tent. He dwelt in the tabernacle, and he went with the people. And every year in the seventh month, the people would celebrate this week-long feast of tabernacles. And they would actually pitch little booths, little tents, and go and live in those tents as a commemoration of the time when they lived in tents and God tabernacled among them. And it was a way in which Israel was, in a sense, reliving the experience of salvation history. And that was one of the ways that the feasts of the Jews or the feasts of Israel functioned. It was a way of not just commemorating, but in a sense, acting out salvation history. And every feast was a reminder and a celebration of how God had provided for his people, how he had delivered his people. And it was a reminder that the same God is, is with the present generation. That same God is with us now. And so the, in, the, in the worship of the Jewish people and in, in their keeping of the calendar of feasts, they were continually recalling, continually celebrating, continually putting themselves in God's redemptive work in history. And it's also helpful for us, and we've highlighted this as we've gone through John's gospel, to see the way in which John is reporting who Jesus is and what Jesus did in the light of salvation history, in the light of God's redemptive acts in history and in the Old Testament. And so in John chapter 6, you'll remember that Jesus was speaking of the manna that came down from heaven. And then he speaks of his flesh and his blood, a reminder of the Passover. So Jesus himself is reminding the people that, yes, you are looking back and you're remembering the Passover. You're remembering the Exodus. But know that all of that is pointing to me. And in fact, your celebration right now, your feast, has its meaning and significance and fulfillment in me. Now that's John chapter 6. Now we're in John chapter 7, and there's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Jesus, again, in the celebration of this feast, will tell the people the meaning of this feast, the purpose of this feast. Everything that happened and what you are remembering in this feast points to me, has its fulfillment in me. And so it's helpful for us as we're reading through the gospel, not only to be aware of the feasts that are being celebrated, but the history that these feasts commemorate and remember. And if you go back and read the book of Exodus, you'll read in Exodus 16, the account of the manna and the gift of manna. And then the very next chapter, what you'll find is the people in the wilderness thirsty, looking for water. And here in John 7, that's what we have. The people, uh, Jesus standing up and saying, whoever is thirsty, come to me. And so just as in Exodus, you have Exodus 16 and then 17. And you have, you have that pattern in history. 
and that unfolding of salvation history. So in John's gospel, he's following the same history. And it's all pointing to Christ and being fulfilled in Christ. And it's helpful for us to, to put ourselves in that first century context, in the celebration of that Feast of Tabernacles. Because when the feast was celebrated in the first century, uh, on the one hand, Scripture gives clear direction on how to keep the Feast of Booths. It is a seven-day festival with an eighth day uh, at the end of that seven-day festival, a day of solemn convocation, solemn assembly when the Word of God was read. You can read that in Leviticus 23. You can read that in Deuteronomy 31. But in the first century, the celebration of that feast also included a water ceremony or a water ritual. And what would happen every day early in the morning is the priests would go to the the pool of Siloam. And if you're looking at a map of Jerusalem, it's just in the uh, the southeast corner of Jerusalem. And they would fill up water water in these golden jugs from the pool of Siloam. And then they would process, you know, they, they, they would walk up to the temple. And as they passed the water gate, there would be people there with trumpets, and they would blow the trumpets as the priest walked by, carrying these jars of water. And then they would ascend the steps of the temple, and they would go into the outer court of the temple. And there would be a great crowd of people waiting for the priest to come in with the water. And the priest would walk by in front of the people, and then the priest would pour out water onto the altar. And the water would flow down to the base of the altar, and there was a drain there, and there was a pipe, and the pipe went down below the temple. And the significance of that ritual actually comes from Ezekiel 47. Because there, Ezekiel has a vision of a future temple. And it's a very detailed and elaborate vision of a future temple. But towards the end of that vision, in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a great river of water flowing out from that temple. And that river goes out into the wilderness, into the desert. It turns everything into a restored garden of Eden. And the priests were pouring water into the temple, and it was flowing down to go underneath the temple as a way of saying and anticipating one day, it's not just going to be a little bit of water that goes down underneath the temple. One day, there's water that's going to erupt from the temple and flow out. And God is going to renew and restore and redeem all things. So all of this is going on as Jesus is teaching and Jesus is talking with the crowds. This was all going on. And then on the last day of the feast, he stands up. He says, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. This water ritual, this ceremony with the priests, the water that they're dumping out, your hope that one day water will pour forth, that's me. I'm the one. I'm the source of the water. And as we consider this text this morning, what Jesus says, I want us to consider, first of all, his warning. Because as, he's, as he is engaging the crowds, and there's lots of opinions about him and different responses, but in verses 33 and 34, he warns them. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, that's a warning. I'll be with you a little longer, but then I will be gone. And you will seek me and you will not find me. It's a warning to us today that now is the time to seek him. Now is the time when we will find him. And if you put that off, it will come to a time where you will not find him. So we need to hear that warning. But then also Jesus called because he stands up 
on the last day of the feast, and he says, If anyone thirsts, come, let him come to me and drink. And that's Jesus' call to us this morning, his invitation to us. Come to me and drink. And the question for us is, are we thirsty? Are we drinking? And then there's the promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In fact, what Jesus says to us is, not only is he the source of water, not only is he the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47, but you who drink from him, you will become that temple. Out of you will flow rivers of living water. And that's the promise. And it's a picture of who we are in the world. And it's a picture of the mission and the calling of the church in the world. So that's where we're headed. And first we need to hear this warning. And as you read this account, there's all kinds of discussion and debate and division and chatter and confusion about Jesus and about who Jesus is. And actually, if you just look at the account, the, the, the first part from uh, verse 25 to 36 is this discussion and debate. Then in the middle, Jesus stands up and he cries out, whoever is thirsty, come to me. And then from the, verses 40 to the end, to 52, uh, again, confusion, chatter, debate, discussion. And the discussion is about who is Jesus? What do we make of Jesus? How do we respond to him? There's a question, is he the Christ? Some people believed, yes, he is the Christ. Look at the signs that he's doing. When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man? He must be the Christ. But then others are saying, well, we, we know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth. He comes from Galilee. The Christ doesn't come from Galilee. We know that. Isn't he of the offspring of David? Doesn't he come from Bethlehem? And then there are others who are saying, but isn't it even the fact that we know where he com- comes from? Doesn't that tell us he's not the Christ? Because uh, don't some of our rabbis and don't some of our traditions say that the Christ will appear suddenly? Surprise us? But we know Jesus. We know his parents. So there's all this debate and there's discussion. And there's different responses. John tells us that the crowd is muttering. They're grumbling. There's this murmuring and this chatter among the crowd. He tells us that there's division among the crowd. There's debate and division, disagreement. There are some who want to arrest him. We're told that twice. They sought to arrest him. Some want to seize him. And in the midst of this chatter and this, and this discussion, there's a concern about the authorities. So at the very beginning, there are some who say, hey, he's speaking openly. None of the authorities seem to be doing anything about this. Could it be that they believe he's the Christ? Maybe the authorities have come to this conclusion. So do the chief priests and the Pharisees, do they think that this is the Christ? And then at the end of our account, the officers who are sent to arrest Jesus, they come back. And the Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? They say, we've never seen a man speak like this. We weren't able to lay a hand on him. We weren't able to arrest him. And the Pharisees respond, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now notice what they say there. How is it that you're impressed by this man? How is it that you are are considering following him? Are you deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? How can you believe such a thing? The authorities, the the Pharisees, they they don't believe in him. 
The experts don't believe in this. You should be listening to the experts. Aren't you following the experts? And of course, we live in a time now where there's, there, there is this kind of chatter and confusion amongst the crowds. All kinds of people saying things. And we're living in a time increasingly, as you're, as you're reading the, the news and as you are uh, following, you know, different people's responses to the pandemic and the, the response to the pandemic, again and again, the, the reporting is, well, the experts say, the experts say, according to the experts. And oftentimes, they're, they're not ever named or cited. It's just the experts. And we, don't, we don't know who these experts are. But the question is, do the, what do the authorities say? And that happens within the church, too. And as we're thinking about this, the authorities will be quoted. Well, look at the reformers. They responded this way. They say that. Follow the reformers. Listen to what the experts say. Listen to what the authorities say. Or we're following this teacher or that teacher or this blog or that particular website. We're listening to this podcast. And we are listening for the experts. We're listening for the authorities. What are the authorities saying? We need to know. Now, our Lord warns us in the midst of all this, in the midst of the chatter, as we are trying to listen, okay, what are the experts saying, and do we follow the experts, and who are the experts? What do the authorities say? Okay, what do the reformers say about this? You know, okay, maybe Calvin says this, so we should do that. Jesus warns us in the midst of this passage, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I will leave. I will return to the one who sent me. And you will seek me and you will not find me. And the warning here is that we can miss our Lord in the midst of all of this. As we're trying to chase down this article and that blog and we share this and we share that, we miss our Lord who's right in front of us. And at the end of the day, each one of us, each one of you, needs to be convinced and convicted that this is the authority right here. And the question isn't, what does Calvin say, or what does Luther say, or what do these guys say, or what does this article say, or what does that article say? The question is, again and again, we come back to this word. What does this say? And each one of you needs to be convinced and convicted about what this says. This is the authority. And what Jesus says, this invitation, come to me and drink, it's a very clear echo of Isaiah 55. Because there God, through the prophet, says, Come, come, you who are thirsty, come and drink. Come and buy wine without price. Incline your ear. Listen to me. Hear my word. And then Isaiah the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And this is a time when he may be found. And this morning is a time when he may be found. And some of you may have come here this morning and you're kind of limping between two opinions. And here our Lord is warning us. Unless you, unless you come to a decision about who Christ is, unless you make a commitment to Christ, if you're waffling and wavering and maybe this, maybe that, I'm not sure, our Lord warns us, you will seek me and you will not find me. Today, seek the Lord while he may be found. And some of you this morning need to get off the fence. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So our Lord warns us that today he stands up and he says, come to me and drink. 
And if you say, well, maybe not today, tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So there's the warning. But then the invitation. And John tells us on the last day of the feast, the great day. This is probably the eighth day. This is a day when they're, uh, according to the law, according to Leviticus 23, according to Deuteronomy 31, this was a day of solemn assembly, a day of holy convocation. And Deuteronomy uh, 31 says, it's a day when the law of God was read. And all the people gathered to hear it. And they were, they were commanded to not only hear it, but then keep the law. And it's on this day that our Lord stands up and says, I'm, I'm speaking now. Listen to me. And on that day, there wasn't the water ceremony. So for the last seven days, there's been this water ceremony. The water's been dumped out. It's disappeared. But our Lord stands up. And he says, that water ceremony that you've been celebrating, that points to me. And he stands up and he cries out. And it's important what John says here. He cried out. Other times he's answering. Other times he says. Here he stands up. And in the first century, teachers would always sit down to teach. It was a sign of their authority. Usually people would stand to listen to the, to the teacher teaching. Jesus stood up, and he cried out. He shouted. And when our Lord stands up and shouts, we need to listen. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. And I mentioned at the beginning that John is following the account of the Exodus. He's following Exodus 16 and then now Exodus 17. He's just reported Jesus, revealing that he's the true bread from heaven. He's the manna that came down. That's Exodus 16. But if you read on, the next chapter, Exodus 17, is the account of the people in the desert complaining to the Lord. They're thirsty. And they're complaining. And in fact, the text says they're grumbling, just as this crowd is muttering and grumbling. And we need to go to that account, Exodus 17, because it sheds light on the significance of what Jesus is declaring here. What he's saying here. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. And when the people were grumbling and they came to Moses and they said, they're saying, has the Lord brought us out here just so that we could die of thirst? Is that the whole point? And Moses goes to the Lord and he says, what shall I do? Here are the people. They're complaining. They're grumbling. And the Lord gives Moses very specific instructions. He says, gather the people in front of this rock. And then he says, I will stand on the rock. I will be on the rock. And here God identifies himself with the rock. I will be on the rock. Gather the people and the elders before the rock. And then he says to Moses, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now remember what happened when Moses struck the Nile. He turned the Nile into blood. He killed the Nile. 
when he struck the Nile. And the Lord says, take your staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and strike the rock. In other words, strike me. Strike me with your staff. And water will flow forth. And so that, that's what Moses does. And sure enough, water flows forth. It's living water. And the people drank. And they were satisfied. Now at the end of the account, we're told the people were grumbling because they were saying, Is the Lord with us or not? And the Lord telling Moses that he would be on the rock and telling Moses to strike him was his answer to that question and that grumbling. Is the Lord with us or not? Yes, he is with you. And in fact, he will be struck for you. And when you strike him, water will come forth and you will live. Now, as you read through Scripture, there's again and again, there are references to this moment and to this rock. But when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of the Israelites in the wilderness drank from the same rock, the, the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the rock, which went with them in the wilderness. The rock went with the people in the wilderness. And then Paul says that rock was Christ, which means we go back and read Exodus 17. Christ is the rock. And when our Lord stands up and says, whoever, whoever is thirsty and come to me, come to me and drink, He's saying, remember Exodus 17, because I'm that rock. And sure enough, as we read through the Gospel of John and we come to the crucifixion, John reports to us that when our Lord was crucified, he was struck with the lance of the Roman centurion. And what does John tell us? Water poured forth from his side. He is the rock who was struck. And when he was struck, and that's what John means by glorified, when he was glorified, when he was lifted up on the cross, when he was exalted on the cross, that's the glorification. He was struck and water poured forth. And it's a, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. So hold, hold on to Exodus 17. That's the meaning and significance of what Jesus is saying here. I'm the rock. But also he's telling them, I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47. I'm the source of the living water. The water will flow forth from me. I'm the one who gives the Spirit. And in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel's vision is of a great river flowing out of the temple. And Ezekiel sees the river flowing out into the Arabah, into the desert. And the desert turns into a garden. It turns into a restored Eden. And then it goes into the Dead Sea, and it turns the Dead Sea into a freshwater lake, teeming with life. And Ezekiel says, and there were trees on either side of the river. And the trees were bearing fruit. The fruit was good for food. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm I'm that temple. When I'm struck, the water will pour forth. I'm the one who gives the Spirit. And we know this from reading through John's Gospel. John the Baptist stood up. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he says, he's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism has to do with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we read on, John chapter 3. And we're reminded of John chapter 3 in this account because Nicodemus is here. And John says, remember, Nicodemus went and met with him before. Yeah, he did. And what what did they talk about? Unless you're born of spirit and water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again. 
unless you're renewed and restored and born again by the Spirit. And then John later is rejoicing that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the Son of God who gives the Spirit without measure. And then remember, Jesus is with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. And what does he offer her? Living water. And that living water will become in you a spring welling up to eternal life. In John 6, Jesus tells us it's the Spirit who gives life. And now in John 7, he says, Whoever's thirsty, come to me and drink. And the image is one of restoration, of renewal of life. Our Lord bestows the Spirit. He gives the Spirit without measure. From him flows these living waters. He's the source. And if we think of Ezekiel 47, the vision is of the life-giving water flowing from Christ going out to the desert of the world, renewing it, restoring it. And one one, uh, concern that some uh, scientists have today is desertification. Desertification. I was worried I wouldn't be able to pronounce that word. I think it's close enough. But it's the process of things becoming a desert, being turned into a desert. It's a real issue in the world right now. And I remember learning about this in school, and I kind of just had the impression, you know, I was thinking of the Sahara Desert and just thinking of sand that's kind of blowing south. And the desert's just kind of creeping, creeping south, and the sand keeps blowing. And I thought, yeah, it's desertification. But it's, it's, it's much more than that. And it happens in ecosystems that aren't um, continually, you know, day by day humid. You just look at, you know, a... a, a um, satellite image of the earth, and you can see the green areas, and those green areas are always green. It's very humid there, lots of rain there. But then there's lots of regions of the world where there's sometimes rain, sometimes not rain, and those regions are being turned into a desert right now. And what happens is over time, and there's various causes and reasons for it, but as the plant life, as the trees, and as the ground cover starts to die, then the soil itself, it loses the shade. It loses the protection that the vegetation provides. It loses the nutrients that the vegetation gives. And even if it rains, that either the the soil is hard, so the water just runs off, or it does soak in, but then it evaporates again. And increasingly, the soil is unable to sustain life. And over time, you have a desert. What, What was a lush area becomes a desert. And that's an image of our society around us, and especially in the West, especially in Canada. For a long time, Canada, in spiritually speaking, was a lush place, a green place. Because people believed in the word of God. People worshipped the one true God. People followed Christ. And think of the image that we have in Psalm chapter 1. If, you're, if you are a, a faithful, if you're a believer, you know, the righteous are like trees. And you can think of of the presence of Christians, and you can think of churches as being like plant life, being like trees in society. And so the soil of society is, you know, it's kept rich, it's kept moist. But as people retreat from this life-giving water, as those trees, as those plants stop drinking the water, that's what's happened with the church in Canada then the ground and the soil gets exposed and the trees start to die. And what happens in the soil of society is the soil loses its nutrients and it it loses its ability to sustain life. 
And so you have an increasing spiritual desert in society. And the last year has, has, yes, been a drought, has been a drought. If you just think of the social and political and economic and cultural health of our society, of this city of Toronto, it's been a desert. It's been a drought. There's been no water. But the concern I have as this continues is not just that there's no water. But what happens is increasingly the soil becomes unable to sustain life. And we are going to feel the effects of this last year for a long time to come. And the longer this goes on, the more there's going to be, in a sense, spiritual soil degradation, increasingly a desert. And so all the more reason why we as God's people need to come to Christ and drink. And we, we, are, we are trees. We are ground cover for the soil of society around us. That's why it's so important that we gather to worship. Because it's here as we gather together that we drink. Sunday by Sunday, we drink. We come and we hear the voice of our Lord calling us to come and drink. And we come and we drink. But for each one of you, day by day, morning by morning, evening by evening, come to God's word. Incline your ear. Listen to him. In your families, in your own personal devotions, come and drink. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that drinking is not just simply an act of knowing the right things about Jesus and declaring the right things about Jesus. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. When Jesus says, you know, you need to feed on my flesh and drink my blood, I'm true food. He doesn't just mean by that, well, understand who I am, understand my identity, have the right theology. That's kind of like recognizing, hey, there's a table, there's food on it. I recognize what that food is. There's some bread, there's some chicken, there's a salad. Well, that's fine to recognize that and know that, just as you can recognize who Christ is and confess the right things about Christ. But the call of Christ is to come and eat. You need to eat the food. And so it is here. You can believe, yes, I know who Jesus is, and he's the fulfillment of Exodus 17, and he's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47, and look at this beautiful picture of the temple and life and everything. Okay, it's, it's one thing to know that and understand that. But Jesus says, come and drink. Come and drink. It's one thing to know, hey, that's a, this is a glass of water. Great, I know what this is, I know what it does. But you have to drink. And drinking isn't just having the right theology. And the Apostle Peter, I think this is helpful, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he, in the, in the opening to that letter, lays out, here, here's all the riches of God's grace. Here's all the riches of our salvation in Christ. And then he says in verse 5, for this reason, knowing that we have been so blessed, knowing that we have this grace, knowing that we have been saved, he says, make every effort. And we need to hear that this morning because I know in my own heart, the last couple of weeks, I, I've, I've just become complacent. I've become lazy. And the Apostle Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What he means by that is, is uh, 
discipline, strength, excellence. Make sure you have an ordered, disciplined life. In virtue with knowledge, continue to study the scriptures, listen to God's word. Knowledge with self-control. We've been tested with our self-control over the last while. And some of us have become complacent. Well, I'm overeating or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. No, self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. That means uh, perseverance. We're, we're bearing up. And that's not something we can do individually. Together we persevere. Together we need to bear with one another and hold one another up. Steadfastness with godliness. Now godliness has to do with that which is pleasing to God. But the word that Peter uses is a word generally in the Greco-Roman world that spoke of worship. Our worship. Supplement faith with worship. That means our, our gathered public worship. And godliness with brotherly affection. You know, we, out of our hearts, flow streams of living water. We, we offer that water to one another. We bless one another with God's word. We remind one another of the gospel. And brotherly affection with love. And then he says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Now, Peter here isn't saying, okay, there's like, here, here's my 10 steps to being an effective and fruitful Christian. You know, do this and then do this and do this. That's not the idea. Like start with virtue and then you kind of move on to knowledge and then you move on to self-control. He's not saying that. What he's saying is all of these things are, are part of what faith looks like. So make an effort. Make an effort to grow in these things. And so we need to be reminded of that this morning. Drinking means that we are not just simply, okay, I've got the right view of who Christ is. Make every effort to grow in strength and excellence, to grow in knowledge, to grow in self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love. Because Peter says, this way you'll be kept from being ineffective and unfruitful. And I want to close with this, the promise of the rivers of life. Out of you will flow rivers of life. And as we go out into this desert of a society around us, we go out with the life-giving message of Christ. The blessing of God's word. And in Ezekiel's vision, on either side of this river are trees. The trees bear fruit. The trees have leaves, which are for the healing of the nations. And as we, as we are, uh, as, as the rivers of living water are flowing out through us, wherever we go, one of the ways that we express this gift of living water is to one another, to nourish and strengthen one another's faith so that we're fruitful, so that we have the leaves that are for the healing of the nations. And when that happens, wherever you are, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work, in your families, as you are fruitful, you, you provide that ground cover. You provide uh, nourishment to the soil. And yes, we are living in a time where increasingly there's, in society, this soil degradation. But our Lord says, come to me and, and drink, and then you will go out and bring the life of the Spirit, bring, the life, bring my life to this dry and dying world. And one of, the, one of the expressions and one of the surest evidences that we have come and that we, have, we, that we are drinking 
And that out of us is flowing streams of living water is joy. It's joy. And the last couple of weeks I found, and I've been, I've been sharing this with different people and asking people to pray for me, but I found I've, I've lost joy. I've been joyless. And studying this text this week has rebuked me for that. Because as you read through Scripture again and again, the references to the rock and the water that comes from the rock are always tied to joy. The river of living water. There's a river that makes glad the city of God. And in Psalm 105, he opened the rock, the people drank. With joy they sang songs. And in Isaiah, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Christ is the well of salvation. With joy we drink. Joy flows forth. And part of the dryness of the society around us is a lack of joy. And this doesn't mean, hey, I feel pretty good. I'm happy. In Scripture, that's not joy. Joy is a considered action. Count it all joy, James says. And joy is an activity. And the two ways that we rejoice as God's people is this right here. We come together and we rejoice together. And then in Scripture, the other place where you rejoice is around the dinner table. Table fellowship. Breaking bread together. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, the summary statement about the early church is that day by day they were in the temple, they were rejoicing, worshiping God there, and then they were in one another's houses, breaking bread, and Luke says, with glad and generous hearts. And so one of the ways in which we can bring life to the society around us is by opening up our homes, having people over for dinner. Table fellowship with one another. So, so joy is a considered action. And we rejoice by gathering together to worship here Sunday by Sunday, but then being in one another's homes week by week. And practicing that fellowship. And breaking bread together. And even here, Sunday by Sunday, we come to the Lord's table. And here at this table, yes, it's a, a meal that we, we come to In faith, it's a meal that we come to in repentance, humility. But this is also a joyful meal and a joy-filled meal. And we come to this table with rejoicing. And so let's come to this table now. Uh, Yes, in penitence and faith, but also in joy and thanksgiving. And one of the ways that we rejoice is by coming to this table Sunday by Sunday. So let's come now with joy in our hearts.